All right, <clears throat> we're going to get stuck in together. Uh, hope you're ready to go. Uh, we've been exploring these challenges against the Trinity, um, and yesterday we started that second challenge that says Trinity doesn't make sense, not coherent, uh, and we explored two big heresies, uh, that, and we... Uh, uh, those heresies, they tried to help the Trinity make a little bit more sense. Uh, but we saw how Christians responded to each of those heresies and said, no, 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 no. The Father, Son and Spirit, they are all one in essence, which means they are the same thing and do the same thing. But they're also three in persons, which means while they are and do the same thing, they don't do it in the same way. Their distinctions reflect the relations between them. But here in this fourth talk, we're going to really press into this second challenge, and we're going to ask, what exactly does it mean for Jesus to be both God and man? How does the eternal, infinite person of the Trinity become a man? And how do we hold that together in a coherent way? And why does it all matter? So that's what we're going to explore in this talk. Uh, let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank, we praise you for your Son, um, who was made flesh and became man for us, so that we might know you, so that we might praise you as our Father. We pray, give us not only insight into the person of Jesus, but a deep love and a deep devotion to him as our Saviour. We pray it in His name. Amen. Well, uh, there is undoubtedly uh, no denying that Jesus is the most significant person who has ever lived. Uh, he has shaped our world, cultures, uh, history more than any other person in human history. Uh, that's just a simple historical fact, regardless of what you think about Him. Um, just have a look at historian Yaroslav Pelikan. Um, he says this about Jesus. It's there in your booklet. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. Um, Time magazine also came to the same conclusion. So if you know Time magazine, uh, a few years ago, they basically they did statistical analysis to work out the most significant people in human history. And, you know, have a guess who was number one? It's Jesus. Um, he is undoubtedly the most significant person who's ever lived. But that begs the question then, who exactly was or is this man, Jesus? Uh, and that's actually the question that sits right at the heart of the gospel accounts. They revolve around this question, who is this man? Uh, and so you can see that in Luke 9. So Jesus, he turns to his disciples and he says, who do the crowds say that I am? And they respond, they say, um, oh, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. But then Jesus turns to his own disciples and says, uh, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And if Jesus really is the most significant person who ever lived, then that means one of the most important questions you can ask in life is, who is this man? That's the question we're going to try and answer in this talk. Who is Jesus? But right from the get-go, it's worth us asking, how are we actually going to answer that question? Um, how do we work out who Jesus is? Uh, because some people have said, um, well, because Jesus is a man who existed in history, all we need is just pure historical method. That's all we need to work out who he is. Don't worry about any kind of faith or religion. We can simply scrutinize and analyze Jesus according to history. Now, is that a good way or a bad way to work out who Jesus is? pure historical method. Well, I want to quickly show you a little experiment. Uh, it's called the Quest for the Historical Jesus. Um, that's what it's officially called. If you Google it, you'll see it there. Uh, and it had kind of three movements. And it was really an attempt to demythologize Jesus, just to look at Jesus through pure historical method. And so they took the ideas of God and faith off the table, and they just tried to approach Jesus 
as any other figure of history. Uh, so, how did they go? Well, the first quest, the quest really kicked off back in 1778. A guy called Herman Raymaris, you don't need to remember his name. <laughs> um, but Raymaris, he tried to get back to what he saw as the real, historical Jesus. Somewhere hidden behind all this unhistorical religious stuff in the Bible. He tried to peel back the layers. And for Raymaris, he thought the real historical Jesus was simply a failed revolutionary. Uh, and then a whole bunch of other historians also came along and they had their crack at who they thought the historical Jesus was. Uh, so you can see some of the proposals there in the box. Some thought he was a myth, a wise man, failure, a non-messiah. And this is really the first quest for the historical Jesus. Uh, but all of that came to a grinding halt in 1906. Uh, a guy called Albert Schweitzer, you don't need to remember his name, but he came along and he looked at all of this and he pointed out that all these different versions of Jesus were actually just a projection of the own historians' own views and their own desires. And Jesus was just a bit of a mirror. And they actually just ended up with a version of Jesus that fit their own views. In the end, they only saw themselves in what they called the historical Jesus. And so after the first quest, basically nobody published anything for a while. Everyone was a bit too scared. Uh, and that's what we call the no-quest period, where nobody had any interest in the historical Jesus. Uh, it kicked off again in 1953. There was the second quest. A guy called Ernst Kasemann, he came along. And he said, um, anything that's, uh, any, all the stuff that's Jewish and all the stuff that's Christian is not historical. Because anything that's religious is clearly unhistorical. Uh, at least in his mind. And he said, well, anything about Jesus that's not Jewish or not Christian, well, that's the historical stuff. Uh, you can see the problem there, because Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> and at least you'd expect something of Christianity to reflect who Jesus was. And if you take away everything, either Jewish or Christian, you're basically left with nothing at all to say about Jesus. Uh, and that is actually the view of Jesus, this second quest. That's the dominant view that you'll find in most secular academic universities today. That's how they approach it. Uh, but then in the 80s, kind of running alongside the second one, is what we call the third quest. It's kind of the flip side of the second. Uh, and so this third quest acknowledges, okay, Jesus was actually a Jew, and he actually lived in a first century Jewish context. And so third questers say... Actually, the most Jewish things about Jesus are probably the most historical. It's kind of what we'd expect. Uh, and so you'll find some big names like N.T. Wright, kind of in this camp, uh, many of whom are good, faithful scholars. Um, this kind of third quest is probably the most helpful. Um, but can you see how it still separates Jesus from kind of Christianity? All that Christian stuff, all that theology stuff, that came after Jesus. It's not really reflective of who Jesus really was. Now, what's the point with all this? Why am I telling you this? Um, history is super useful. And there's heaps to learn from some of these quests, uh, particularly from the third. You know, Jesus, he is a figure of history. And so we can look at him through a historical lens. But if we automatically rule out all the God stuff, all the faith stuff, like these quests do, then ultimately we're going to end up with a different Jesus to the one we find in the Bible. Here's why. If Jesus really is the God-man, God become flesh, then that means something profoundly unique has happened in Jesus. Something that's never happened before, something that'll never happen again. This is because it's such a unique event, history can only take us so far. The best it can do is prove that Jesus did some godlike things, like miracles, or that his followers at least believed that he was divine. But history can't prove that he was God. Um, there's a great little one-liner there from a guy called Francis Watson. Uh, he says this, Historical research is unlikely to confirm an incarnation or a risen Lord. Uh, why is this the case? Because if Jesus really is God, 
then that means something from outside of human history has actually broken in and entered into the story of humanity. And that is something utterly unique in the history of humanity. Uh, Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that Jesus is unhistorical or that history is useless. Um, Have a look at what T.F. Torrance says. If God has become man in the historical Jesus, that is an historical event that comes under our historical examination so far as the humanity of Jesus is concerned. But the fact that God became man is an event that cannot be appreciated by ordinary historical science. For here, we are concerned with more than simply an historical event, namely, with the act of the eternal God. We must face with utter and candid honesty the New Testament presentation of Christ to us, not as a purely historical figure, nor as a purely transcendental theophany, but as God and man. Torrance, he goes on to point out that the kind of knowledge you need to appreciate Jesus as the God-man is faith. If you're going to say that he's God, you need faith. And faith isn't unhistorical. It's not blind faith. Have a look at what uh, Torrance says. Faith is not the perception of revelation divorced from history, nor is it the perception of history by itself, divorced from revelation. But it is the way we are given within history to perceive God's acts in history. And that means that faith is the obedience of our minds to the mystery of Christ, who is God and man in the historical Jesus. Why does it matter? If all you do is history, you're never going to come and approach this man and say, he is my Lord. That requires faith. Jesus is a man, and so you can use history to analyze him. But if he really is the God-man, you can't simply just analyze and evaluate him according to history. You also need faith to appreciate that the God who is outside human history has written himself into the story. It's not history versus faith. Faith is how you receive the God-man in history. So I want to invite you to come. Come and have a take God's word at face value. Uh, see what this book says about who Jesus is. And as we do, I want to invite you to respond in faith. But before we get to the New Testament, I want to start with the fact that even in the Old Testament, there's this expectation that when God shows up, He shows up in the form of a man. When God appears to someone, He appears as a man. Uh, One place you see this is actually in Exodus 33. So, glory of God passes before Moses, but have a look at how it's described. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And He, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Do you notice that? Have you ever noticed that before? God describes himself as having a face, hands, a back. It's almost as if when the glory of God goes past, it's actually a man walking past. I don't want us to get too overexcited though, because this is still very, uh, this is a very long way off from actually saying that God actually became a man. Uh, And so I take it that these are what we can call anthropomorphisms, where God's described as being a bit like a man, but it's still a long way off saying that God is a man. 
Have a look at what Graham Cole says about this. The Old Testament expected human agents, or even divine agents of the divine purpose, to come to Israel's aid at some juncture in its future. A prophet like Moses, a Davidic king, the son of man, the child born bearing the name Mighty God. And the Old Testament writers also expected God himself to come. But an incarnate, divine human deliverer? On the surface of it, there seem then to have been distinct but unsynthesized lines of expectation. One concerning God and another concerning a human agent that constituted the mainsprings of Israel's hope. Can you see what he's saying? The Old Testament expects God to show up and rescue his people and to use human agents to do it. But for God to actually become incarnate in human flesh, that's something quite different entirely. And the Old Testament only gives us vague lines of expectation. But now come with me to the New Testament. We read this before. Have a look at John in chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God became man. The Word became flesh. Can you see how monumental this is? Like how significant this is? How new this is? Have you ever wondered what actually makes the New Testament new? Like, have a think to yourself. What's new about the New Testament? It's not grace or faith. They're there in the Old Testament. It's not the revelation of God's Son or His Word. We've seen they're there in the Old Testament. It's not atonement or hope. They're all there in the Old Testament. Have a look at what Anthony Hansen says about what's actually new about the New Testament. He says, The newness came through the Incarnation. Not through the revelation of the Son as such. What was new was not grace or faith or rejection or love or Son or Word, but God the Word incarnate. God the Son incarnate. It was the taking of flesh as such. The act, the event in history, culminating of course in death and resurrection, that was unique, supreme new. The thing that makes the New Testament new is that God became flesh. And while that's in continuity with the Old Testament, the new thing is that now God is a man and His name is Jesus. Uh, the unique claim of the New Testament is that Jesus is both God and man, not simply God nor simply man, but both. So, let me show you how those dual realities play out in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, first, the birth of Jesus. And the claim of the Gospels is that Jesus was both conceived by the Holy Spirit, God, and also born of a woman, Mary. Have a look with me at Luke chapter 1. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Can you see how Jesus is both conceived by the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit came and overshadowed Mary. Uh, but Jesus is also conceived in a womb, the womb of Mary. Um, we don't tend to talk a lot about the virgin birth uh, of Mary, partly because Roman Catholicism has twisted a lot of things about Mary, uh, almost turned her into some kind of semi-divine person. It's not biblical. 
But can you see how the gospel actually depends upon Jesus' conception by the Spirit in the womb of a woman? If Jesus wasn't conceived by the Holy Spirit, say if he was just conceived by a normal man like Joseph, Mary's husband, then Jesus, he's not really God. At best, he's a holy man or a prophet, but not God. But the Gospels insist Jesus wasn't conceived by a man, but the Holy Spirit. And because of that, he's God. But at the same time, if Jesus wasn't conceived in the womb of a woman, say he just kind of descended from on high or sprung up out of the ground, if he wasn't really born as a baby, then he isn't really human. But the Gospels insist on both of these realities, born of the Holy Spirit, born of a woman, God and man. The infinite and eternal Son of God, who has been with the Father since before creation, now he becomes something he wasn't before, a man. The eternal Son puts on flesh. But Jesus wasn't just born as the God-man, he also lived and grew as the God-man. Um, So we've already looked at the divinity of Jesus. That was kind of back in talk two. Remember that? Four arguments, divine fulfillment, divine action, divine response, divine titles. Let me show you the other side of the coin. Jesus' humanity. Uh, Which is to say that while he is always divine, he was a man who got tired. You know when he goes out on the boat and the storm comes? Why do you think Jesus was asleep? I wonder if it's because he was tired. He was a man who slept, he ate food, he got hungry, he had emotions, thoughts, in exactly the same way we do, and yet without sin. But the Gospels also speak about him growing up as a man. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus didn't just come pre-packaged as an adult who knew everything? He actually had to learn things and grow, just like we do. Have a look at Luke 2. Luke 2 tells us about when Jesus was 12 years old. And it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. He grew. Or Hebrews 5 takes it one step further. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus actually had to learn to be obedient? Which is not to say that he was ever disobedient, but that he had to grow up in his obedience. Um, Or there at the end, it says he was made perfect, which is not to say he was ever imperfect, but that he grew in his perfection. Um, Just think about a tree growing. When a tree grows, it doesn't become something it wasn't before, but the tree does grow and becomes more of what it's always been. Um, It's a little bit like that with Jesus. You can break the illustration. He doesn't become perfect as if he was imperfect, but he does grow, like you and me. And the reason why this matters is because if Jesus never grew, never learnt anything, he wouldn't genuinely be human. He wouldn't be like us. But the Gospels say, no, Jesus submitted in every way to what it means to be a human, except to sin. Um, You can see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before he dies, Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Can you see, Jesus is a real human being with a real human will. He's not a robot. And so he prays, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Don't let me die. Because it's human to not want to die. But at the same time, as the divine son, his will is perfectly united with his father's. And so he prays, not my will, but yours be done. At every moment of his life, Jesus lives and grows as the God-man, who is both fully divine and fully human. 
But what about Jesus' death? Have you ever wondered what actually happened to Jesus when he died? Like, where did he go? What happened to him? Did he go to hell for three days? Was his humanity torn from his divinity? Did his divinity actually die on the cross? Like, what actually happened to him? I think it's actually very simple. I think the same thing that happens to us happened to Jesus. See, when you or I die, our soul, our spirit is torn from our body. That's actually the trauma of death. It's the fragmentation of the person. So when we die, our body is dead in the ground and our soul, our spirit, goes to be with the Father if our trust is in Jesus. Uh, And it's that way until our bodies are raised from the dead and our spirit is once again reunited with our body. Paul teaches that, 2 Corinthians 5, you can look it up. But it's also right there in Luke chapter 8. So in this story, Jesus, he raises a little girl from the dead. And if you look, it says, Jesus, he took the girl by the hand and he said, child, arise. And notice it says, her spirit returned and she got up at once. The implication being that her spirit had left and when she was raised, it came back. That's, uh, that's what happens to us when we die. And that's what happened to Jesus. See, as a man, Jesus has a human soul, a spirit just like us. And when he died, his human spirit was torn from his body and went to be with the Father. He's still fully God and fully man. It's not like the divine bit was torn away. Uh, And I think you see this in Luke 23. Do you know what Jesus says right before he dies? This is the very last thing he says. He says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. And his spirit remained with the Father for three days while his body was dead in the tomb until the third day when his body was raised from the dead and his spirit reunited in the resurrection like it will be for us. Still fully God, still fully man. Jesus didn't just live as a man, he died as a man. The same kind of death that you and I will experience, unless he comes back first. So that's what happened to Jesus at his death. But I think that also leads on to another curly question, which is around what what happened to the Trinity on the cross? And in particular, was Jesus, was the Son separated or cut off from the Father? Was the Trinity torn apart at the cross? Um, See, for many of us, we're probably pretty comfortable with the idea that Jesus was separated from the Father. Um, Maybe for some of us, we've got a certain song going through our heads about the Father turns his face away. So what do we do there? At one level, I think it kind of comes down to what exactly we mean when we say that he was separated from the Father uh, or that the Father turned his face away. But let me make a couple of observations. The first is that there aren't any clear verses that describe Jesus and the Father being separated. It's not really the language of the Bible. Uh, The only verse that I think probably comes closest uh, is what Jesus says in Matthew and Mark's Gospel when he prays, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, You can see it there, it's Matthew 27. Now, what are we going to do with that? Um, The first thing to understand is that when Jesus prays this prayer, he's actually quoting a psalm. It's Psalm 22. And so if we want to understand what Jesus means when he prays that, uh, we first need to understand what David meant when he first prayed that prayer. And so if you go back to Psalm 22, what you'll see is that David, he isn't so much saying that he's been cut off from the presence of God or that he's been separated from God's people, so much as David is asking, why am I suffering so much, God, 
And why don't you seem to be saving me? And that's what I think Jesus is praying on the cross. He's asking why God doesn't seem to be saving him from his suffering, which is a slightly different thing to actually being uh, separated from God. Um, there's, There's a difference there. And remember that the last thing that Jesus prayed was actually, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a prayer of dependence and intimacy. Now, Absolutely, Jesus suffered and bore the wrath of God. He took the penalty of sin, which was death. But I wonder if saying that he was separated from the Father is really the best way of expressing that reality. Can you see the Father, Son and Spirit are actually united at every moment? Especially on the cross. Remember what we saw yesterday. The Father, Son and Spirit all do the same thing. They all save us. But they don't do the same thing in the same way. Only the Son dies on the cross. But this is important because the cross is not divine child abuse. It's not like the Father is really the wrathful, angry one and Jesus is the one he's taking it out on. They're actually working in complete unity. The Father is offering up his Son for our sin at the same time as the Son is offering Himself up for our sin. And in the language of Hebrews, Jesus not only, He he offers Himself up in the Spirit, is the language of Hebrews. It's the one God, three persons, reconciling us to Himself. But the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus didn't stay dead, but was resurrected on the third day. But he doesn't leave his humanity behind when he was raised, as if he was raised to be divine again, no longer human. And the Gospels say Jesus was raised fully God and fully man. You can see that Luke 24. Um, As we read it out, look for the language of being a human. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? (laughs) They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. It's almost as as if Luke is desperate to show us that Jesus was, he was raised fully God and still fully man who ate fish and he had flesh and bones. Why does it matter? Because if Jesus wasn't raised as a human, then we have no hope of being raised as humans. But he was raised as a man and he still remains a man now with flesh and bones and blood standing at the right hand of the Father. And because there is a resurrected man in heaven, we too can have the hope of a very human, very physical resurrection. Because he is the God-man who conquers death. I think we see all of this come beautifully together in Philippians chapter 2. Let's read it and then I'll pull out a couple of key things. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice a couple of things. 
Notice that Jesus was in the form of God, which Paul explains as having equality with God. That's the full divinity of Jesus from eternity. But then notice that Jesus emptied himself. But Jesus doesn't become empty by losing something. You know, if you get a cup of water, how do you empty it? You take something out. But can you see what happens here? Um, Jesus doesn't take something out. He doesn't lose his divinity. He actually empties himself by getting something. Can you see it? Paul says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, which Paul explains as being born in human form. Can you see Jesus has both the form of God and the form of humanity, fully God, fully man, and he empties himself not by losing his divinity, but by gaining humanity. And as a man, he becomes obedient, even to the point of death on a cross for our salvation. Uh, And he has now, as a man, been exalted to the right hand of the Father. Uh, This is who Jesus is. He is the God-man, Christ Jesus, our Lord. All right, let's take a quick break. Discussion question. Uh, you might have questions. Uh, here, I've got a question if you don't have any. Uh, so Jesus says that he doesn't know the hour when the Father will send him to judge the living and the dead. How is it possible that Jesus doesn't know something if he's really God? All right. Take a quick moment, have a breather, uh, have a chat. Let's bring it back. Uh, We've been exploring who Jesus is as the God-man. And we've seen he's genuinely a figure of history. But if we're going to fully appreciate his identity as the God-man, the God who's broken into history, we also need faith if we're going to see him as he really is. Uh, And we've seen his divinity and humanity play out in his birth, his life, his death and his resurrection, and we've seen it hold together in Philippians 2. Um, With the rest of our time, what I want to do is have a quick look at how Christians tried to make sense of all this and put it together in a coherent way. So, what I want to do is I want to start by taking you through three false leads when it comes to understanding who Jesus is. Three different guys who tried to make sense of who Jesus is, but ultimately missed the mark. They All three of these guys, they come from in and around the 4th century, Uh, in and around the Council of Nicaea, which we looked at last night. So we'll go through them pretty quickly. But first, there was a guy called Apollinarius. And the way he made sense of Jesus as the God-man was by, by saying that Jesus had a human body, but a divine mind or a divine soul. And so he had this um, divine mind in, inside this shell, which was a human body. Uh, You know, in some cartoons or anime, you've got like a giant robot and somebody sits inside the cockpit controlling the robot. So Power Rangers, Voltron, something like that. Uh, That's similar to Apollinarius's view of Jesus. Human body, like a shell, but then in the cockpit, you've got a divine mind doing the driving. Uh, Can you see the problem there? If that's true, then Jesus isn't fully human like us with a human soul, a human body, and a human mind. He's only partly human, just with a body. Uh, Which means he didn't really become like us. He just looked like us on the outside. And that's not the gospel. Uh, Everything falls over if Jesus wasn't fully human. That was Apollinarius. But then there was another guy. He had a crack as well. His name was Nestorius. He had a different view. What he said is that really there were two different people that just looked like one person. And so he said there's this divine person, the eternal son, who kind of sat behind the scenes. And there was another person, the human man, Jesus, who wasn't divine. And they just had a deep spiritual connection. Kind of the divine person sat behind the human person doing the controlling. So you can imagine like a puppet and a puppeteer, they kind of make the same movements, yeah? And you can see two things, but the puppeteer is doing the controlling. Um, What's the problem there? Well, if Jesus wasn't really fully divine and fully human, but it was actually two different people, then the Word didn't really become flesh and reveal God to us. And it wasn't really God 
who took our sins on the cross. It was a human being being directed by God. Again, the whole gospel falls over. But there was another guy called Eutyches. He had another different way of explaining who Jesus is. And he said, when the word became flesh, what happened is that Jesus' divinity and his humanity were mixed together to form some kind of divine human composite. All right. Any Dragon Ball Z fans here? All right. Ah, a few. Uh, so in Dragon Ball Z, there's a thing called fusion, where two people fuse together <laughs> to form a new third person. So uh, when Goten and Trunks fuse, Goten and Trunks, they form... Gotenks, <laughs> who combines the powers of both and is this third different person. Um, that's kind of how Eutyches thought of Jesus, a fusion of divinity and humanity to form kind of some new third thing, and this guy's called Jesus. All right, where's the problem there? Once again, Jesus isn't really fully human, nor is he really divine anymore. He's actually a mix of both, which makes him both unlike God and unlike us. So there's three ways that miss the mark when explaining who Jesus is. So how did faithful Christians make sense of who Jesus is? How did they put it all together? Um, well, uh, think back to last night, we had the Council of Nicaea, that was 325, so they tried to nut out the Trinity well, in just over 100 years later, in 451, so 350, 325, 451, uh, a bunch of leaders got together again, this time for what was called the Council of Chalcedon. And the question they were asking was, how do we make sense of Jesus as the God-man? And in response to those different false leads that we just looked at, they came away saying that Jesus is one person, who is both fully God and fully human. And they called this the hypostatic union. So, have a look with me at how they explained all of this. Uh, and it's what's called the Chalcedonian definition, which is kind of like another creed, like the Nicene Creed. Okay, there is heaps in here. <laughs> I'm not going to explain every detail. But just have a look at how they try and hold the dual realities of Jesus' humanity and his divinity together. This is actually one long sentence. Uh, if you're writing an essay for like uni, don't write sentences like this. In agreement, therefore, with the Holy Fathers, we all unanimously teach that we should confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is one and the same Son, the same perfect in Godhead, and the same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man the same of a rational soul and body, consubstantial with the Father in Godhead, and the same consubstantial with us in manhood, like us in all things except sin, begotten from the Father before the ages as regards His Godhead, and in the last days, the same because of us and because of our salvation, begotten from the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos, God-bearer, as regards his manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, made known in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the difference of the natures being by no means removed because of the union, but the property of each nature being preserved and coalescing in one prosopon, which just means person, and one hypostasis, which means subsistence, which uh, who even knows what that means either. <laughs> Not parted or divided into two prosopa persons, but one and the same Son, only begotten, divine word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets of old and Jesus Christ himself have taught us about him and the creeds of our fathers has handed down. All right, heaps in there. It's very dense. Maybe go and have a read of it later. I just want to notice two things. First, notice that they say that Jesus has two natures. Two natures. And nature there really means the same thing as essence that we looked at last night. 
Uh, Jesus, he's of the same essence as the Father. He is the same thing, does the same thing as the Father. But he is now also of the same essence as humanity. He is also the same thing as us. He's like us. And he does what a human does. Two natures, two essences, to use that language. He is and does what God does. And he is and does what a human does. But notice that there's only one person, or prosopon in Greek. There aren't two different people. There's one person whose name is Jesus, and he is both God and man, without there being any confusion, division, or separation. Uh, and this union of divinity and humanity is what they called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union, which really just means the personal union. See, this is important. It's not as if Jesus sometimes acts like God and sometimes acts like man, as if he had two different modes. You know, in a car, you've got normal mode and sport mode. I leave my car in sport mode. Um, it's not like Jesus has human mode and then divine mode for the really hard miracles. Um, it's one person who acts as God and man. Um, have a look at what Herman Bavinck says. I think it's very helpful. He says it's always the same person, the same subject, the same I, who lives and thinks, speaks and acts through the divine and the human nature. Quick little summary. In God, there is one essence. So in, in the tr Trinity, one essence, three persons. But when the Word became flesh in Jesus, that one now has two natures in one person. But where I want to finish is by asking, why does all of this matter? Like, you could be sitting there thinking, all of this just still sounds super abstract, academic. And so with the last bit, I want to show you why this matters for the Christian life. And I want to ask, why did God become a man? Why did he become a man? And the first reason God became man was to reveal God, so that we would truly and genuinely know God. How is it that we actually know God as our Father? Have a look at what Jesus says to Philip in John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Did you catch what he said there? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you know who Jesus is, you know who God is. If you know Jesus, there is nothing else beyond that to know about God. It's not like there's some other bit that you need to learn about God. It's all there in Jesus. Can you see why this totally depends on being Jesus, both a man and God, though? Because if he's not a man, he hasn't really entered into our world. If he's not a man, then God is still ultimately separate from us. But by becoming a man, God really and fully has genuinely entered into our world and our human experience. You can poke him. He's just as much part of this world as you or I. But if he's not also God, then he hasn't really brought God into this world and made God visible, knowable. He's just another prophet speaking about God. Uh, and God's still ultimately separate. But because he is fully God and fully man, then if you know Jesus, then you know God. Can you see the link there between humanity and God? Um, because he is both. Um, this truth is actually more important right now than ever before in our modern, secular, Western culture. See, think about our culture, our rationalist post-enlightenment culture, we actually have a very strong divide between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. You know, God belongs in the spiritual realm and there's things like cold, hard atoms in the physical realm. We've, we've very strongly separated them and we've gotten rid of the spiritual. Um, this is quite unique to our modern secular culture. Have a look at what uh, philosopher Charles Taylor says. He says, almost everyone can agree that one of the big differences between 
us and our ancestors of 500 years ago is that they lived in an enchanted world and we do not. At the very least, we live in a much less enchanted world. We might think uh, of this as our having lost a number of beliefs and the practices which they made possible. But more, the enchanted world was one in which these forces could cross a porous boundary and shape our lives, psychic and physical. One of the big differences between us and them 500 years ago is that we live with a much firmer sense of the boundary between self and other. We are buffered selves. We have changed. So what, he goes, what Charles Taylor says is there's the transcendent realm where things like God and heaven and spiritual things belong. And there's the physical realm made up of cold, hard atoms. So he calls that the transcendent realm and the imminent frame. That's just his words. Uh, and he points out we've got a very strong boundary between those. We've separated them out. So a little diagram there on the left. Can you see how Jesus uniquely cuts across the boundary? He's both part of the imminent frame made of cold, hard atoms uh, because he's a man. But he's also part of the transcendent realm where God belongs and he never ceases to be God. And so can you see how Jesus uniquely bridges the physical and the spiritual? He is the only one who bridges God and us. He is the way, the truth and the life. He brings the transcendent into the imminent and makes God known. Uh, and it's only because he's both God and man. Have a look at what Torrance says. The humanity of Christ guarantees the actuality of revelation. It's here. But the deity of Christ guarantees its nature as revelation of God. Were Christ not man, God's revelation would not actually be revelation to man. But were he not also God, it would not be valid for only God can reveal God. Only Jesus can reveal God because he's both God and man. But Jesus didn't just come to reveal God, he also came to reconcile us to God. Uh, because our problem, what's our problem? Our problem is not just that we don't know God. Uh, our biggest problem is that we've actually sinned, turned our backs on God, rejecting his rule over our lives, which means that we now deserve the wrath of God. Uh, there isn't just a knowledge gap, there's also a relational gap between us and God. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't just make God known to us, he also reconciles us to God, dealing with our sin. Um, just one little verse I want to show you there. 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you see how there's really two movements there? First, Jesus becomes sin, taking our sin upon his shoulders, paying our debt on the cross. But then second, he gives us his righteousness so that we might become holy, perfect and pure before God. He becomes sin and we become righteous. That is the gospel. But can you see how that fundamentally depends on, being, on Jesus being both God and man? Because if he's not man, how can he take the punishment for humanity's sin? The punishment is death. And how does God die? By becoming a man. But more than that, Jesus can only make us holy and righteous by giving us his own very human righteousness. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, he points out that if Jesus wasn't fully human, if there was a part of him that wasn't human, then there would be a part of us that's not saved. Have a look. He says, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. Godhead joined to flesh alone is not man, nor to soul alone, nor to both apart from intellect. Keep then the whole man and mingle Godhead therewith that you may benefit me in my completeness. What he's saying there is that if Jesus didn't have a human body, then our bodies wouldn't be made holy. And if he didn't have a human mind, then our minds wouldn't be made righteous. Because the only righteousness we have is the one he gives us. Have a look at what Torrance says. 
If the humanity of Christ is imperfect, atonement is imperfect, and we would then still be in our sins. Apart from the human obedience and human life and death of Christ, apart from His human sacrifice, we have nothing at all to offer God. Nothing with which we can stand before God but our sin and guilt. But we do have something to bring before God, and it is the righteousness of Jesus. That's my righteousness. That's why Jesus has to be a man to reconcile us to God. But why does he have to be God? Because only God can truly defeat sin and death. If Jesus were just a man, then it wouldn't really be God who saved us. God would simply be using a man while he remained distant, far off. Have a look at what Tyrant says. I love this. He says, put Jesus a man on the cross and put God in heaven like some distant God imprisoned in his own lonely abstract deity and you cannot believe in him. In a God such that he is monstrously unconcerned with our life and who does not even lift a finger to help Jesus. But put God on the cross and the cross becomes the world's salvation. The whole gospel rests upon the fact that it is God who became incarnate and it was God who in Christ has reconciled the world to himself. Jesus has to be both God and man in order to reconcile us to God. Um, It's a theologian in the 13th century called Ansel. He puts it really nicely. He says, Since none but God can make atonement and none but man ought to make it, It is necessary for the God-man to make it. Jesus is the God-man who not only reveals God to us, but reconciles us to God. That's why he became a man. And so just before I pray, uh, I want to finish by sharing how Athanasius answered that question. Why did God become man? I think what he says here is really insightful and heartwarming. So I'll read it and then I'll pray. (laughs) For this purpose then, The incorporeal and incorruptible and immaterial Word of God entered our world. In one sense, indeed, He was not far off from it before, for no part of creation had ever been without Him, who, while ever abiding in union with the Father, yet fills all things that are. But now He entered the world in a new way, stooping to our level in his love and self-revealing to us. He saw how unseemly it was that the very things of which he himself was the artificer, maker, should be disappearing. He saw how the surpassing wickedness of men was mounting up against them. He saw also their universal liability to death. All this he saw and pitying our race moved with compassion for our limitation, unable to endure that death should have the mastery, rather than that his creatures should perish and the work of his Father for us men come to naught, he took to himself a body, a human body, even as our own. Nor did he will merely to become embodied or merely to appear, Had that been so, he could have revealed his divine majesty in some other and better way. No, taking a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, he surrendered his body to death instead of all and offered it to the Father. This he did out of sheer love for us, so that in his death all might live and the law of death thereby be abolished. Thus he would make death to disappear from them, as utterly as straw from fire. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have shown your infinite and indestructible love for us in sending your Son, that we might know you, and be reconciled to you because he died for us in taking our sin upon his shoulders 
and providing us with a thing that we never had, pure holy righteousness. And it is only because of that that we come before you and we call you our Father. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.